The following sermon was preached at Redeemer Church in Tumball, Texas. For more information, go to makingmuchofjesus.org. I invite you to please take your Bibles and open them to not 1 Corinthians, but to Ephesians chapter 4. Called a little bit of an audible this weekend on, on the sermon, and I think coming off of the heels of our great marriage conference, uh, if you were not able to be there, um, never fear. There will be videos over the next few days. They'll be posted, and we'll share those with all of you. Um, I think it'll be some of the most helpful uh, things that you could watch for your marriage and for your life. I was greatly encouraged, and just about everyone I spoke to at the conference said, man, this was so helpful. And especially couples have been married for a few decades. A lot of them said, man, I wish I would have heard this way before um, today. And so I, I trust that you will be so well served. And I think one of the key elements in a marriage and just in any human relationship is the call to biblical peacemaking, where the Lord calls us to walk in unity and, and reconciliation with one another. And so I want us to start by looking at what our brother Paul shows us in the book of Ephesians, starting in chapter four and verse one. But since these words come to us, and the same authority and presence and power of King Jesus himself, as though Jesus were right here speaking, let's stand in honor of our King and read, beginning in verse 1 through verse 6. And here's what the Spirit of the risen Christ says to us. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another and love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Lord, now, would you please send your great spirit to make us eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace in our marriages and friendships and relationships. Lord, would you create in us the believability of the one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And we know only you can do this. We are vastly incompetent people. But we look to you, Jesus. So now, would you come? And in your mighty name we pray, amen. I remember a, a tiny season in my life, it was in my elementary school days, where I wanted to be a professional boxer. I don't know why you're laughing already. Uh, it's, not, it's not a joke yet. I don't, know if, I don't know if I'm to blame the electric hype of Mike Tyson's punch out and how enjoyable that was to play on Nintendo, or the fact that I was constantly being punched out by my older cousin. Uh, you know, boys will be boys kind of thing. I didn't have an older brother, but he was basically my older brother, and he would just beat the snot out of me whenever he could. Uh, he was two years older than me, a lot taller than me, a lot stronger than me, which might be surprising to you. And so we would really scrap. We would get after any time we could, knock down, drag out brawls over anything. And then my sweet Aunt Rosie would come in and my mother would come in and, and pull us apart and say, all right, boys, make up. And he would come over and, I'm sorry, Jeffrey. Probably the only person on the planet, so calls me Jeffrey. 
It, today, he'll still call me Jeffrey. I'm sorry, Jesse. And then they were like, all right, boys, shake hands, hug. They would walk out, and then he would turn, you better not do that again. I said, well, you better not do it again. And, and then before you know it, we're at war. <laughs> we're brawling. We'd be nice for a little bit. But we were always seconds away from fisticuffs. Now, that was because we were really immature. When I saw Jesse at Christmas time, I didn't walk over to him and go, you better not cross me today, buddy. Why? Because we're mature now. And a lot of times in our relationships, we're very at war with each other and we're not reconciling and we're not at peace because we're just really acting immaturely. And you can take that from an interpersonal scale, take it to a global scale. North and South Korea aren't technically at war right now. But are they at peace? No. So when we think about peace in our relationships, just because there is an absence of war doesn't mean we are walking in peace together. So brothers and sisters, are you at peace with one another? Are you at peace with your spouse? I'm not asking, is there not war? But are you at peace? Are you, are you tense? Are there elephants in every room throughout your house? Are there relational lines drawn in the sand? Are you at peace with your children? Are you in a spat with someone in your small group? Biblical peacemaking is more than the absence of war, which that definitely includes. But biblical peacemaking, that peace among believers is a sweet gift of the gospel. As one scholar says, yes, this biblical word for making peace, and as Paul says, to, to maintain the bond of peace, it will include the absence of war, but it also gives notes of peace and harmony and sweetness and love. Guys, right now, if you are at odds with another believer, maybe even the one sitting next to you, you rode with together, you, you, you woke up together, and you're still at peace with one another, your spouse, the Lord Jesus wants you to put a premium on peacemaking and dwelling in unity. He would encourage you, demand of you, even before you sing the closing song today, maybe you even need to slip out and leave the sermon and go and speak with your spouse in the car, in the parking lot. Maybe you need to text somebody and say, we need to speak today ASAP. Can you please, can we get together? Can I come over and go and be reconciled? Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Jesus says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, so get the picture in mind. There are Jews headed to the temple, ready to worship. And Jesus says, if you are headed to go and worship and you recognize and you remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift, therefore, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus says, you remember you got something fishy going on in a relationship? You don't stuff that down and go worship like everything's all hunky-dory. You don't fake it till you make it. You drop what you're doing and you go and be reconciled. And sadly, many of us do not put that level of urgency on our peacemaking. I have met very few Christians who put that kind of urgency on their level of peacemaking and dwelling in unity together. We, we stuff down our conflicts. We avoid the hard conversations. We fake it till we make it. This is not godly. There is no power in pretending everything's okay. This is not spiritual. This is not walking in the gospel, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, with all humility, with gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the union. So eager to maintain. 
I picture a guy who has a classic sports car that he's, he's kind of building. He's rebuilding. He's, he's eager to get that one part. He, he's eager to clean this up. He's eager to keep all the tools the way that, because he wants it to be maintained. He wants it to work right. And he's ready for it to be unleashed so he can have the rolling down the road. He says, apply that to your peacemaking, your marriage, your relationship, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. But if we are not eager and we have a conflict uh, with spouse and we just stuff it down and, and just ignore it, guys, time heals nothing. Time does not heal anything. Only blood heals. Only resurrection heals. Only the cross heals. And when we think time heals and we let the sun go down on our anger, what does Paul say in Ephesians 4? Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So when we try to stuff it down and just let bygones be bygones, just let things work themselves out as though that's ever worked before, we are actually inviting demonic activity into our relationships. This is no joke. You give opportunity to the devil. And this is not how you've learned Christ, if you know Christ. When we let bitterness and jealousy and strife fester in our relationships, we're cultivating disorder in every vile practice, James chapter 3. And James 3 continues, but the wisdom from above, the wisdom of Christ, is peaceable, gentle, open to reason. We would have a lot less strife in all of our relationships if we were open to reason to hearing from God's word, from walking in the light and hearing counsel from another brother or sister in Christ. Biblical peacemaking, guys, isn't a strategy for merely getting along. Like a lot of people, that's why they, okay, yeah, we need to make peace because I want to have harmony. I just want to get together. That, that, that's, that's not it. Biblical peacemaking is more than a strategy for getting along. It is a sign of supernatural living. Peacemaking comes from the very heart of God. It comes from the very character of, of who God is. So peacemaking isn't just something we do. Guys, it's something we are if we are Christians. Turn to Matthew 5. Listen, listen to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 9. So leave a marker, finger, put a, I don't know, you can't really do anything on your phone. So just flip to Matthew 5. And when Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, it's, an, it's very important to hear how he speaks of these Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 9, Jesus says, blessed, how happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So here, Jesus isn't saying, hey, if you'll do some peacemaking stuff, you'll be a son of God. That's the way we kind of read it naturally, but it's not in the whole context of the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus is saying is, if you are a son of God, you will be the kind of person that seeks to make peace. You will be a peacemaker because this is what citizens in my kingdom do. So guys, peacemaking isn't just something you need to start doing. Being a peacemaker is something you are. And you need to become it. You need to live it. You need to pursue it. Jesus is showing us that as new creations, this is a part of who we are. And if you are a Christian, you are now walking with a peacemaking trinity. We have a relationship with the God of the universe who is a peacemaking God. Peacemaking isn't natural to us. Some of you are more easygoing. You feel like, well, you know, I, I like to keep the peace. I like to be, I don't like, to, I don't like conflict. Okay, that's different. That may be your makeup, how you grew up, but that's not supernatural. What we're looking for is supernatural peacemaking. 
conflict really is unavoidable. And when you got married, think about what happened. All your sin, all their sin, yay. <laughs> you doubled the amount of sin in your atmosphere. And then you have children. You're, you're adding another one. You're, add, you're adding, compounding more sin into your environment. So we are going to have difficulties. We are going to have issues. We should not be surprised when these things happen. Conflict is unavoidable, but it is the unresolved conflicts that must be unavoidable in our relationships. It's the things that we must deal with. Peacemaking is a skill, a practice, an act of love that we all must learn. And it comes directly from the heart of God. Hebrews, I'm sorry, Romans 15, 33. May the God of peace be with you all. We're with the God of peace. Philippians 4, 9. The God of peace be with you. So we walk with a peacemaking God. We've been made at peace with God. There is no longer any strife between us and God because we walk with a peacemaking trinity. Jesus made peace between us and God and one another by his blood and crusted cross. Colossians 1.20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things by making peace by the blood of his cross. We now experience with God no relational lines drawn in the sand. There are no any cold shouldering between us and God now. There is no silent treatment between us and God because Jesus died in our place and rose again from the dead. The cross is the conduit for all the peacemaking between us and God. And when you give the cold shoulder, when you give the silent treatment, when you draw relational lines in the sand, and when you create the cold war, you are actually subverting the way of the cross and thinking that you know a better way to make things right in the world. Will you dare defy the cross by holding on to grudges when your hands have been crucified with Christ? If you really have been crucified with Christ, it's no longer you who live Dare you hold on to grudges while your hands have been crucified with Christ. But if you will see yourself as crucified with Christ, and the way that you perceive others will change, that petty offense gets absorbed and consumed by the glory of the cross. Now, when you hold that grudge against your spouse, if you will view yourself as crucified with Christ, and then view them as someone who has been crucified with Christ, and they've already been forgiven of that sin, Dare we pull ourselves off of the cross and wag our finger at them? The God of peace be with you. Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. And consider the Holy Spirit. Consider the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. You see, the very heart of our triune God is peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of these things are, these fruits of the Spirit, are ingredients for biblical peacemaking. And they're ours in Christ. They're, they're yours if you are a Christian. Our God is a God of peace. Our, the Son is a God of peace. The Spirit is a God of peace. And if we will walk with the Trinity, what we will discover is that the heart of God will flow out from our heart as we being conformed to the image of Christ. And do you see why Paul stresses unity so much in chapter 4? Look at what he says. So eager to maintain the unity. So that's the first kind of eager to maintain unity. And look at all the unity he expresses. There's one body, one spirit, 
Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call in verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So he says, when you think about your relationships, these are over all of it. That conflict you have with your spouse, you're having a conflict with someone who is a part of, they have that one Lord. They have the one faith. They have the one baptism. They have the one Father who is over all and in all. This is why peacemaking is so important. Because when we don't eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and we aren't embodying the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism, we're actually embodying a false gospel. So every man in this room must constantly ask themselves, am I eagerly maintaining the bond of peace in my marriage? And if I'm not, you could ask it another way, is the leadership in my home preaching a false gospel? Is the leadership in my home not preaching the one Lord, one faith, one baptism? And every wife must ask herself, is the way I love and respect my husband and submit to his leadership and support him and and help him, am I preaching a false gospel? Is my marriage preaching a false gospel? I know we all believe in grace and we all want grace. But are we also people who are living graciously, who dole out grace like just giant vending machines of grace, just ready to give it at any moment? And I know, like, this is, in in, in my marriage early on, this is still true today. When your spouse quips a, a funny, sarcastic comment in front of your dinner guests about your less than stellar parking abilities, Just an example, not personal, very personal. I'm a horrible parker. Golly, it just, I have parking anxiety. It just freaks me out. And uh, he makes the joke, you can either be hurt or embarrassed, or you can laugh along. You're really left with those two options. And I think early on in a marriage, in the first year, Natalie's hilarious. I think she's the second funniest person I know, second to me. And she would just say things that were so funny, and I, I would be like, ah, I can't believe you said that. You're cutting me down as a man. That's just idiocy. And a lot, I've seen a lot of marriages, they, they say things like that. A little comment made, you know, a little joke, which is funny, and someone's insecure. How dare you? You always say things like that. When Natalie made that comment the first year in our marriage, she wasn't cutting me down as a man. She was really revealing how insecure I was. That I didn't find my identity in Christ, but that I found my identity in in trying to be a great Parker. (laughs) I found my identity in how people would think of me. Now, when she says that, I'm like, oh, I know, I'm horrible. I want to get out and let you park. I'll see you at the place, you know. I'll go get a table. You park the car. I can't do it. And so, really, in your marriages, your relationships, you're at the crossroads, really, almost every conversation. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. So you can't just overlook it, like, yeah, you're right, totally, no big deal. But if you've really been sinned against, I mean, like, you've really been hurt, chapter or verse, not just, ah, I think you sinned against me, but no, right here, Ephesians 5, verse 2, this, this happened. If that sin really occurs, what you must do, if God was dishonored, 
The relationship is, is being damaged. You can't cover it up. You can't just stuff it down. You must go to your spouse and share how you felt sinned against. Matthew 18. You do Matthew 18. You talk to your spouse. You approach them in humility and share how you feel sinned against. You go in humility. You don't name call. You don't, you don't, you don't sin in the process of showing someone else their sin. This is how conflicts go from like DEFCON 5 to DEFCON 1. Just boom. All of a sudden, name call sin upon sin upon sin. And now the, the divorce word gets brought up. Approach them in humility, as Proverbs 16 says, knowing that by sweetness of speech, persuasiveness is added. And knowing that the law never changes anyone's heart. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. I'm constantly amazed as a pastor at this church for five years now, how, how many married couples will tell other people about their spouse's sin before they tell their spouse? That in itself is sinful. That is a recipe for continual frustration. Speak to one another. Say it. Have the hard conversations. You will save yourself years of frustration if you will have the honest and difficult conversations. If you will actually walk in the light. If you will actually walk and speaking the truth in love. If you keep putting on the pretending, it will be a powerless marriage. Speak to one another. Silence won't give rise to peace. But the crucifixion of self, it will sow a harvest of peace, humbling yourself before God and just saying what needs to be said in a loving, gracious, kind way. And if you approach them with the scriptures, saying, honey, I, when you did that, when you said that, I, I really, I felt hurt. You use a lot of eyes and no, never name call. You, 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 you're, you're not their accuser. They're not on trial. If they're a Christian, they've already been on trial 2,000 years ago. And you don't call, you know, you're such a liar. You're such a drunkard. You're an adulterer. You're a porn addict. You, you don't label identities to people because if they're a Christian, their identity is in Christ. What you have in marriage is you have a Christian who is struggling and who needs grace. And so you come alongside and say, baby, I, I feel like that was a really, really prideful thing. And I, I felt really sinned against when you said that. And if your spouse says, whatever, just grow up, what, you, you do what the Bible says. You do the next step in Matthew 18. Okay, well, great. I'm, I'm going to call our small group leader. Let's, let's do that. If that doesn't work, you call the elders. This is like Jesus has given us the ways to be reconciled to one another. And there was a great family at our church. They called us probably once a month. And it was the, the wife would be like, okay, I'm going to call Kevin, Jeff, and Barry. It's happening. He'd be like, do it. And then it would happen. He'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, every time. And then other times, I'm calling them. And she would say, fine, do it. And call them. And they're like, oh, you're right. I've been so sinful. Like, this is the way Jesus said it's going to work. We're totally complementarian at this church. Men lead the home. Men lead the church. And wives have their roles in the home. They have their roles in the church. Both equals. It doesn't change level of importance, but we just have distinctions in the way we're to operate. But there is a failure within complementarianism sometimes. To be a complementarian man and, and wife, it does not mean that the husband is unrebukable by his wife. And a lot of times I think women feel that. I can't say that because my husband's a leader. If your husband is sinning, you tell him, baby, I love you, you're sinning. I remember one of the first really heated kind of moments, it was a very like crossroads moment in our marriage in the first year. 
we're having an argument about something. We don't fight, but it was just a, a, an argument we were having about something. And, and I remember now, I was just very honest. She doesn't even remember this. And, I, and she said, you're just not, I just don't feel like you're loving me the way I'm supposed to be loved. Wow. wow. She went to bed. I said, I'm sorry. I just sat, sat in the hallway, cried and prayed. That might need to happen in some of your homes if you want to walk in power. Because you're walking with the peacemaking trinity, maybe that kind of moment needs to happen. And as you do that, you walk with the gospel of peace. Now, I don't know when the last time you were in a three-legged race was, were, was. I'm getting sleepy. It's not usually a very successful three-legged race. I, the last time I was in a three-legged race, I wasn't really hitched to like the most athletic person in the world. And they're probably thinking the same thing. <laughs> and when you get in a three-legged race, one other person, you can't just go, all right, I'll carry it. Just, just hold on. And you just go for it. You're going to be tripping. Like, you got to get in sync. If you're not in sync, this is going to be a disaster, and you're going to lose. When the Bible says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, keep in step with the Spirit, a lot of the problems in our Christian life is because we're just charging ahead. Well, okay, I'll just do it. I'll do it. And I don't think it's intentional. We try to just kind of do things without Jesus. It's just the nature of our old flesh. We're just used to doing things our own way and our own brains and our own smarts. But Christianity is to slow down and say, okay, I want to keep in step with Jesus. I want to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. That's exactly what Paul's saying in Ephesians 4. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What have we been called to? To Christ. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. And guys, our marriages will be in dysfunction if we're not trying to walk in a manner worthy and with Christ. Our gospel is a message of peace. Think about when Jesus, the night Jesus was born. What did the angels say? Peace on earth. That is the declaration of when Jesus touched down on the planet. The angels say, peace is here. That is God's foreign policy with us. Peace. And how many of us in our marriages are betraying the gospel of peace? Are we living up to the angelic promise of peace? What did the, the apostles preach throughout the book of Acts? Acts 10, the apostles went about preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Guys, are we preaching the gospel of peace through Christ our Lord to one another? We know that the gospel is offering us peace with God, peace with God, but the gospel is also offering us peace with one another. Have you lowered your relational guns? Are you always kind of ready to fire at will? Have you created a ceasefire environment in your home? And now you're embodying a strategy of love. Do our homes have the aroma of Christ or of eggshells? I've been in really two kinds of homes. And you can tell within in the first five minutes, either this home is filled with the aroma of grace or this home is filled with eggshells. And all it takes is the first conversation. And you can tell. Because like the tone, the posture, the eye contact, everything. It's so obvious. And if that's your home, you're thinking, that is us. There is a way for it to be changed through Christ. It can happen for you today. Are we betraying the gospel of peace because we don't walk in peace and unity and harmony with one another? 
First John says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. If we aren't careful and diligent, as Paul says, to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit, we might end up preaching a false gospel. But how sweet it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity, Psalm 133. And Christian peacemaking is not the world crafted, just sweep it under the rugness. It is especially sweet because it holds all of these sweet and savory notes of the gospel. It reminds us of the divine grace that we now have with Christ. Ken Sandy, in his wonderful book, Peacemaking for Families, you should absolutely read it. He says, because Christians are the most forgiven people in the world. Like, you got to really believe that. If you're a Christian, you are saying about yourself, I am now one of the most forgiven people in the universe. And because that's true, he says, we should be the most forgiving people in the world as well. When, we, when you do biblical peacemaking in your marriage, among your kids, and in relationships, when you, every time that occurs, you are telling the entire storyline of the gospel every time. Because all that's encapsulated is redemption. There's confession, there's repentance, there's humility, there's love, there's forgiveness, there's reconciliation, there's harmony, there's joy, all fueled and formed by the gospel. And here's what we got to, we just have to debunk this. You've got to just erase this out of your mind and just, you got to crucify this expectation. A gospel-centered marriage, a gospel-formed marriage, a, a marriage that looks like Christ and his church, it does not mean your marriage will be perfect. That's what a lot of us think. I want to have a Christ-honoring marriage. I want to have a gospel-mirroring marriage. So my marriage got to be perfect. That's not what it means. It's not going to happen. A gospel-formed, gospel-mirroring, Jesus-exalting marriage is one that is filled with forgiveness. It's one that is filled with reconciliation. It's one that is filled with confession and repentance and humility again and again and again. Because is that not our relationship with Christ? Is that not all we experience from Jesus himself? When we come to him, we confess, we repent, and we're forgiven, and we're loved, and we're accepted again and again and again. A gospel marriage is not a perfect marriage. It is a peacemaking marriage. And if you will grasp that, your marriage will be changed forever. As Paul says in Philippians 1, only let your life be in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, standing side by side, striving for the faith of the gospel, united together, because, guys, you've got to think about your destiny, where you're headed. Ten billion years from now, all of us will exist. And you are being conformed to the image of Christ. You're being made into the image of Jesus. That is your destiny. And so as we're being transformed and as we're headed towards that direction, that peacemaking will flow out of us because it is coming from Christ. The more we're being transformed to his image, the more his image will be made manifest in us. So peacemaking will naturally flow because it's coming from Jesus, because we've been united to the one who makes peace by the blood of his cross. A true peacemaker is guided by his identity, her identity in Christ. So since the gospel is true, let us, as Romans 14, 19 says, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Since the gospel is true, let us each please his neighbor for his good to build him up, Romans 15, 2. 
Because of Jesus, let's be grace-extolling people. Because of the great forgiveness we've experienced in Christ. Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Are you the kind of person who is ready and eager to remove the plank out of your eye so that you can properly deal with your brother or sister's speck? Matthew 7. I mean, so how do we do this? How do we actually do this? How do we walk this way? It's what Paul's saying. Walk in a manner worthy. How do we do this? First one. I mean, how do we strive for peace with everyone? Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone. These are not suggestions. They are commands. So how do we strive for peace with everyone? First, like all desires to grow in godliness, you pray to our Father and ask that he grant the supernatural work of the Spirit in your life. It won't, you, you cannot make it happen. I think one of the most freeing elements of Christianity is to admit I'm powerless. I am totally helpless. I am totally clueless. I have no ability to do this. If I keep trying this on my own, I will be another massive failure. So Father, help me. That's the only way. Will you send your spirit and make this alive in my life? Secondly, now you focus on Jesus. Hebrews 12, one to four, looking to Jesus. As Ken Sandy says in his book, practically speaking, here's how we begin the peacemaking process. We focus our eyes on Jesus. And as we focus on Jesus, we ask ourselves one central question during any sort of conflict, how can I please and honor God in this situation? That's what you ask. You realize, when you realize you sinned against your spouse and you realize they sinned against you, you step back before you charge, before you bring in the jury, you, you step back and go, Lord, how, how can I honor you here? How will you be honored here? This is not about me winning. It's about you being honored. How do I honor you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? And then how do I honor this person I'm in conflict with? That question will guide your peacemaking. You avoid name-calling. You avoid berating. Because Proverbs 16 says, by sweetness of speech, persuasiveness is added. And if you're being rebuked, especially guys, don't bow up and, like, what, how could you say that? You're the fool in Proverbs who needs 100 punches to the face to get it. Exactly what Solomon's speaking about. So don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, Romans 13, 3. But see yourself in light of the cross as a sinner who is in need of grace. The main reason why so many of us walk in disharmony is because we're not walking in love. And fresh biblical peacemaking, gospel-mirroring peacemaking, is going to be centralized in forgiveness. We have to be people who are ready and willing and know how to forgive. So forgiveness is, is, let me tell you three things forgiveness is not. Because a lot of us are really confused about what forgiveness really is. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's not something like, ah, I don't know, I don't feel ready for, of course you don't feel ready to forgive. No one does. And if they do, they're lying. No one feels ready to forgive. No one has this feeling like, okay, yeah, this feels like a good thing. No, it's, it's painful, it's supernatural. It's not a feeling like love or joy or, or though, though it's, it's a decision. You, you do it. You just do it. You forgive. It's a transaction. Forgiveness isn't forgetting. It's not magic dust. It's not the men in black. Pew, like it's gone. That's, God doesn't forget our sins. The omni-competent, omni- Loving, 
And then omniscient, all-knowing God. He doesn't forget. God chooses not to bring them up again because they're covered in blood. So forgiveness is on you. Once a person asks for forgiveness and you say yes, now it's all on you to not dig it back up again from Jesus' tomb and rub it in their face. Not using it as some kind of relational anthrax. And forgiveness isn't excusing. Oh, I know. I know that's just how you are. It's okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. That's why it's a sin. It's not okay. Because if, it's not okay because that one thing without Jesus will send them to hell forever. So it's not okay. We don't minimize it in the heat of forgiveness. We do say, I forgive you because of Jesus. That's why you forgive. Because of Jesus. Real forgiveness does four things. It lives by these four concrete promises. When you say, I forgive you, it's now all on you. That person is free. You know you have not really forgiven them if you say, I forgive you, but I'm watching. That's not forgiveness. I'll forgive you, but you better not mess up again. That is not how God interacts with us. Forgiveness is four real things. I will not think about this incident. I will not think about it. I will not dwell on it. And it will not affect me. I'm forgiving you. I will not use it against you. That's number two. I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. That's already covered in blood. And if our Father in heaven is not using it against them, how dare we use it against them? Do we think we're better than the holy, almighty Lord of the universe? That we've earned some special right to use their sin against them? Three, I will not talk to others about this incident. Four, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. And aren't these the wonderful pictures of the salvation and relationship we experience with God in Christ? Especially that I will, not, I will not talk to others about this incident. I don't imagine that right now in the heavenly places, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and Gabriel and a few other angels are gabbing about our sins. It's not happening. They're not, they're not talking about it. They're not bringing it up because it's all been covered in blood and it's all been left in the ground where Jesus rose from the dead. All of our sins are covered in blood. There's no longer any dividing wall between us and God because Jesus tore down that wall, Ephesians 2. So we don't drudge up the past and use it against people. That's the way of the serpent, not the spirit. To walk in a manner worthy of the gospel is to eagerly maintain the bond of peace. Recognizing and reflecting the power of the gospel in our relationships, husband and wife, Church member, church member. Parent to child, friend to friend. All functioning under the peacemaking lordship of our risen Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be resurrected people. We're showing people this is what the kingdom looks like. Love, hope, forgiveness, restoration, redemption, not perfection. We're headed there, but Jesus' kingdom right now on earth is ruled by grace. So the line in the sands, covered by blood, that flowed mingled down at Golgotha. All the cold shouldering, that's been put on that wooden cross. 
All of the silent treatment has now been drowned out by a man from Galilee screaming, it is finished, and has now given us a spirit by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And now we dwell together side by side in union with King Jesus. Strive to make peace, not war. I can leave you with no better words than the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, when he says, finally, finally, brothers and sisters, Rejoice and aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Let's walk this way. Christ be praised. Let me pray for us. If you're serving communion today, I invite you to to come forward. Lord Jesus, now we, we ask that you would send your spirit and that you would make us eager, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace in our relationships, in our marriages, in our homes. That we would not be preaching a false gospel by the way we treat each other, but that the world would see that we are your disciples by the way that we love one another. And Lord, only you can create this. We cannot manufacture it. We could fake it for a couple of weeks if we're really good at faking. But Lord, we want the sustainable, bringing us into glory, maintaining of the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Jesus, would you help every man in this room to love his wife like Christ loves the church? And Lord, would you help every every wife in this room to see that she respects her husband and submits to him as as the church submits to you. Lord, we need your help. We cannot do this without you. Would you create in us an eager dependence upon you? Now, Lord, would you do this? And it's in your holy and awesome name that we pray. Amen.